Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit down. I'm kind of mourning. I'm mourning the loss of the last period of Zazen, of Sashin. But um, I um, have great aspiration to sit more Zazen. And uh, so therefore, um, hopefully that'll come true. If we want something enough, it often works out. So uh, there'll probably be some more Zazen sometime <laughs> in this life. I hope so. For all of you too, if you want. You might be celebrating the end of the last period. Dogen Zenji likes to celebrate the old Buddha Hongzhi, Chinese Soto ancestor, who uh, also liked Zazen. I think he liked Zazen because he wrote poems about it. And uh, one of the poems about Zazen that Hongzhi wrote, that Dogen praises, says that Zazen is uh, knowing without touching things, illumining without facing objects. Knowing is this jnana, chi, jnana. So you could translate it also. Awareness without contact. Without contacting things. Illumining or uh, cognizing, luminously cognizing without facing external objects. This is a description of zazen. The kind of knowing where there's no contact, of contact you need, you need a subject and an object in order to have contact. And uh, subjects and objects can appear within the space of knowing or awareness, but they're not really separate things. There can even be the appearance of contact, but it's not really contact. It's like a movie of contact. We're watching the big screen and the two movie characters stand up and shake hands. It looks like contact, but um, from the point of view of the screen, it's just a it's just a display, an image of contact. And the nature of that handshake in the movie, that actually what the handshake in the movie is made out of, is just the screen. So the contact that appears there is nothing but screen. And the subject uh, of the handshaking and the object of the handshaking are all made of the same 
substance, which is called movie screened, undifferentiated, uh, unchanging, unsullied, pure screen that's, that that uh, is not um, doesn't collect if you if you um, if you drop a bunch of dust onto the movie screen in the movie should say if there's a movie of a dust pile right <laughs> that that um, dust pile does not touch the screen or dirty the screen right? of course here's the screen is just a metaphor for this knowing without touching things. So, Kazan continues. Buddha refers to the original nature of mind. That's what Vasubandhu said. I think. Uh, what is the Bodhi of all Buddhas? It's the original nature of mind. Here, Buddha, Kazan says, refers to the original nature of mind. <clears throat> Another name for the screen is uh, Buddha. Original nature finally is unknowable and unseeable. It's not, no- in other words, knowing is not knowable as an object, knowing is not seeable as an object that can be seen. Our nature, Buddha nature, cannot be seen. So, there's this term, kensho, in Buddha, in Zen. Kensho literally means seeing nature. Nature short for nature of mind, or Buddha nature. And uh, so it could be a somewhat problematic term to say, um, awakening is like seeing nature because it's not something that can be seen and uh, <clears throat> when we were looking at this um, at this great Satori essay of Dogen in, in Rohatsu Sushin I got curious about um, these different terms that Dogen uses for awakening um, so I, I did a you know digital search of the Shobogenzo. You can plug in the, the characters for these different terms into the Japanese Shobogenzo. It's all in one text file. And, you can, and it'll tell you how many times that character appears. So it's, this is... I'm a geek. <laughs> this is a very geeky thing to want to do. <laughs> what did you plot on Instagram a histogram? I don't even know what that is. I'm not that geeky. <laughs> oh, bar graph. Oh, yeah. It would be easy to do that. I'll do that tomorrow. And I, don't, I didn't actually bring the numbers with me, but, um, but, but the uh, characters that I've heard and that were studying the Shobogenzo seem to appear again and again are... Um, I don't know if there's any do, do, Dogen geeks in the, in the room who would venture to guess what Dogen's favorite term for enlightenment is in the Shobogenzo. Kinsho. 
Realization. No. Realization. Realization. As a as a um, in Japanese character. Because sometimes realization is is um, translated is an English translation of different words. Verification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This character show that literally means verification or confirmation, but it does also often get translated as a realization. Um, as in practice and realization are not two. Literally, it's a verification. That's Dogen's favorite. Um, 400 and something times, I can't remember. 400 something times in, in, in 95 essays of the Shobo Genzo. Uh, and I, I love that he loves that <laughs> term because I think it's very nice. It's, it, it's a nice term for um, awakening in this directly experiential kind of sense and it can be used in a non-dualistic way very nicely. Um, practice is verifying the reality of Buddha, verifying awakening. Uh, and I think generally he's talking about verifying in a non-conceptual way. So that's, that was number one. Number two, um, second favorite term of Dogen is Satori, which is in, also can be read in, in Japanese as Go, as in this essay Daigo, and, uh, which literally means, it's often used for enlightenment or awakening in Zen, but literally means to understand, or to re- also means to realize. Uh, didn't, Dogen didn't have a problem. Sometimes we say, Soto Zen doesn't really talk about Satori, but that's about 300-something times in the Shogo Genzo. So a lot, a close runner-up to verification. And um, maybe I just looked up those ones. Oh, oh there's another one, um, Kaku. Uh, that also, interestingly, in Japanese is, is pronounced satori and also means to realize or understand, but um, in its kind of um, Sino-Japanese reading is kaku, and it maybe most commonly and literally means um, awake or awakening. So it's a nice translation of bodhi, actually. Maybe the most accurate Chinese character for bodhi. And that was... I think also 300-something times. He uses that quite a bit, too. And then Kensho, we hear this a lot in Zen, but I've heard rumors that Dogen didn't like this term, Kensho. It's more used in Rinzai Zen, even in modern days. And so um, Kensho is there in the Shobogenzo 11 times. So way, way, way down compared to hundreds of these other uses. And uh, even more surprising to this geek <laughs> was that um, every one of the times in the Shobogenzo Dogen mentions the term Kenjo, he criticizes the term. Like, wow, I really, that was very interesting. He really had a thing about this. <laughs> he, um, yeah, it's, if you want... trained about tradition, too. Yeah. yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. And it might be that um, 
in later times, post-Dogen, that it became more associated with Rinzai Zen in Japan. I don't know in, in that time. It might have been more associated because of Dogen criticizing it, right? Um, he doesn't say a lot about why, uh, but um, I would understand it as to say seeing nature is a little bit like um, there could be some contact involved, like seeing a form. Like Buddha nature is something that you can see rather than something you can verify. It verifies a little more non-dual, right, than seeing something. I mean, seeing nature, as long as we understand it's just sort of a poetic way of talking, uh, doesn't seem so bad, but Dogen, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a little reifying, and he had all these people coming from the Rinzai tradition practicing with him, and maybe they were constantly talking about Kensho, and it was it was annoying Dogen or something. <laughs> yeah, but maybe it's really it's part of his the style of his teaching he's trying to convey. But he criticizes it in um, Mountains and Waters Sutra. He says this is not the teaching of the Buddhas and ancestors. In um, the Bukyo, like Buddha, the Buddha's teaching essay, um, he says it's in it's used in the platform sutra of the sixth ancestor, which it is. I think that might be the origin of the word Kensho is the platform sutra, and uh, Dogen even goes so far as to say like, well, um, the sixth ancestor, he's one of our ancestors, but. He didn't really say Kensho, but people added that in later. <laughs> I think it's one of the central things in the platform sutra. So he, he had a bone to pick. Um, so Buddha refers to the original nature of mind, we might say, doesn't refer, refer to seeing the nature of mind. <laughs> I don't know if Kazan uses the word Kensho. I could imagine he might not be so averse to it because he's so into nature and Buddha, nature of mind. Oh, but here's how we got off on this tangent. Original nature finally is unknowable and unseeable, which is actually Ken in this translation here of the Ken show. Show is unkennable, <laughs> Kazan says here. And this is the supreme way. Thus, in the mind, capital M, <laughs> we're talking about big mind, there is no form and no standpoint, or no abode, much less a Buddha or a way in, in awareness, space-like awareness. There's, no, there's nothing called a Buddha or a way. These are all nothing but names. Buddha is not something to know. The way is not something to be cultivated. And this big mind is not something to understand with shiki or dualistic consciousness. Dualistic consciousness cannot be established anywhere or any position. And so it was said that it is the emptiness of the six sense bases, the six objects, and six kinds of consciousness. Thus, do not speak of this realm as mind and its objects. Mm-hmm. Do s- small m mind. Small m. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
the translator is sort of helping us out because I think they're using the same character here. Uh, and do not discern it as conscious knowing. Shiki chi, which is like the knowing of dualistic consciousness, of vijnana. When you arrive at this realm, Buddhas do not reveal any shapes. Or another translation says, Buddhas do not appear, and the wonderful way does not have to be cultivated and maintained. However, even though seeing, hearing, and ordinary perceiving are nowhere to be found, sounds, forms, and movements also cannot be established. Or another translation says, sounds, forms, and movements have no boundaries. Therefore, it was said by Master San Ping Yi Chun in a verse, this seeing and hearing is not seeing and hearing, and there is no sound or form to disclose to you. If you thoroughly understand that there in these there is nothing at all, what is the point of discriminating or not discriminating essence and function? So I'm not ex- sure exactly what's be- being derived out with these last lines. Uh, what's the point of discriminating or not discriminating between essence and function, which is a, a Chinese way of talking about these two truths of like the ultimate and the relative. Is that G and Re? That- oh, um, it's a little different. Yeah, there's also that um, Re and G is like principle and phenomena. And here it's um, Tai and Yu. Tai means like substance or essence, and Yu, as in like Jijiyu, Zamai, is um, function. So there's, it's another, yeah, Ri and Ji are one Chinese way of talking about this, and it's this a, is... It's also a way of, of um, saying yin and yang in mm. Chinese, essence and function. Ah. So function and movement is yang, ah. essence or substance is yin. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yin is the unmoving, uh, in this case, um, inactive essence, and yang is the active movement. And uh, since the time of Dungshan in our lineage, our practice is sometimes conveyed by the six lines of the illumination hexagram in the I Ching. This is kind of like some esoteric Zen stuff from the Jewel Mirror Samadhi. And this doubles Li hexagram that, that is made up of a double trigram, and the trigram is two yang lines, for those who know the I Ching, the solid lines are yang and the split lines are yin. So it's two yang lines with a yin interior. And double that. And it means like fire or illumination. So um, I haven't heard the ancients comment on that in this exactly this way, but, but my teacher Tenshin Roshi said, this is, this is a nice demonstration 
of our of our lineage it has a yin interior like an unmoving um, inactive essence but the exterior the surrounding lines are are this yang activity or you could even talk about zazen is this unmoving center but it functions actively in the world so yin and yang like this now things actually are, if it haven't been difficult so far I think it's, it gets kind of hard here <laughs> I find this a little bit hard to understand exactly what Kazan's saying but maybe we can get the spirit of it um, it's something about he's exploring the senses now and how and this non-contact realm of um, the senses operating within the space of awareness uh, where they don't really contact and it's almost like the senses are merging uh, the way he's describing we say like what is that in the merging of difference and unity we say hmm? not so much that they're merging with each other like synesthesia not so much that seeing and hearing are mixing but more like the eye and the seeing and the object are like merging which isn't really a, so much a traditional way of talking it's more like they're interdependent in the early buddhist model right the eye the color and the eye consciousness are interdependent but we don't say they like merge into one suchness but in zen like this merging of difference in unity we say each sense in every field interact and do not interact when interacting, they also merge. So maybe something like this, like uh, I think it's more like experiential way of um, of relating to the senses, because where colors and and um, eyes seem to merge into one reality, because they're not really separate. So here's how how Kazan says it: Do not think of sound as do re mi fa so. Do not think of forms as blue, <coughs> yellow, red, and white. Do not think of seeing as conditioned by the eye's brightness. And uh, it might be worth he- hearing the footnote on that one. Because um, that's the translator's um, interpretation. And he says... He says, this is a paraphrase and interpretation of the original, which literally says, do not think of seeing as the root or track of the eye's light. Do not think of seeing as a kind of like track of the, of the eye's light that's going out and meeting objects. So I think that literal has some virtue too. Do not think of it that way. Do not think of seeing as this like beam of of knowing that comes out from the eye and he he paraphrased it as um, do not think of seeing as conditioned by the eye's brightness Uh, do not think of hearing as the ear's sense base in short people the eye is not opposed to forms another translation has it 
The eye does not correspond to forms. Maybe opposed is kind of nice. It's like the eyes over here and the forms over there. Don't think of it like that. Uh, nor does the ear deal with sounds. If you say that the ear is opposed to sounds or that the eye is conditioned by forms or dependent on forms, then there's no clarity in sound and there's darkness in the eye. So I think the gist of what I think he's trying to say is any kind of duality we, we, um, if we're perceiving the way these senses work in a dualistic way, they, they don't really work that way. But the way he's talking about it is a little challenging. Does this have anything to do with the different ways that the term I was used about? Isn't there something about um, like I, I of enlightenment versus regular eyes? Oh, yeah, like Dharma eye. Yeah. And Buddha eye. And, um, but I know. Could be, could be in there, but um, I don't think it needs to be. I think he could just be talking about the ordinary senses, but that they're, okay. that the sense faculties are not opposed to the objects, or even dependent on them. Of course, that is the early Buddhist teaching: is that the sense faculties and the sense objects are dependent on each other. And here, this is new, as new Zen kind of third turning take. Remember we talked about the differences. I think the. The first turning and the second turning of Nagarjuna is also based on that the eye is dependent on the, on the color, and therefore there's no independent eye and independent color. But the third turning, the way we talked about it, is the eye and color are like, are like a movie on the screen of, of awareness, and therefore it's not like they're really two things even dependent on each other. They're just the display of awareness um, manifesting as uh, as eyes and colors. Sorry to keep coming back to the same thing, but it's just stuck in my mind. Does this relate to Suzuki Roshi and the oh, sound of the oh, word? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah. it becomes the, your sound, right? Yeah, Is yeah. Type of yes, yeah, version? yeah. Okay. Sorry we didn't get back to it That's specifically, okay. but, but maybe you could see now from this third turning perspective... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the, the sound of the bird when you're sitting very still in zazen, it's like there's no separation between you and the sound. And then the blue jay will come right into your heart, which you could say is you. Your, you and your heart is everything, is the totality of awareness. So it, you recognize, you verify that now the sound of the bird has always been right in your heart. I think this is a poetic way of saying your heart is everything and the blue jay is right in there. <laughs> it's nowhere else. There's nothing actually outside your heart, which is the um, totality of awareness. Yeah, thank you for re- reminding us about that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so in this, you could say that's the, the Buddha nature. Um, understanding of of sound and color. If 
you say that there is something opposed to the senses or something held by the senses, or another way it said, something awaited, awaited by the senses or something, um, yeah, something waiting for the senses like we talked about earlier, like some color waiting for an eye to appear <laughs> or sound waiting for an ear. If it's that kind, those are opposed ear and sound then. Uh, if you say it's like that, then how can sound enter the ear and how can forms enter the eye? If the subject and object were truly separate. Therefore, if it's, if it's not like the sky merging with the sky or, and not like the water merging with water, then there is no hearing, there is no seeing. You follow that? It's like... It's like, here he's saying, it is like the way that sounds merge with eyes is like water merging with water. In this, in this view. The way, uh, the way that sounds and ears meet is like water mixing with water. And uh, we could say, with this movie uh, metaphor, there's a... Um, there's a movie character on the screen um, listening to a bird and is, is it like that the bird sound on the screen comes into the movie character's ear? Not really. It appears that way but it's really like um, this part of the screen is like merging with this part of the screen. It's one, only one screen is all that there actually ever really is and uh, so like the senses and their objects are like sky merging with sky or water merging with water or screen merging with screen. But because this is so, that there, it is like sky merging with sky, then the eye merges with forms and the ear merges with sounds. They are joined or fused together without any separation. They are joined together with nothing remaining. So we might say, doesn't, isn't that sound like contact? But I would say this is not the view of contact anymore. This is like um, the, the one reality of um, eye and color. Eye consciousness and color is one fusion rather than there's an eye, a color, and eye consciousness contacting each other. This is, instead of three things in contact, there's just one reality here. So, um, is this like, um, and it might have been you that I actually heard this from, but like the, the early Buddhist conception of, you know, the eye and the object of the eye you know, creating this eye consciousness is a sort of an appearance uh, of the same thing. So maybe it's sort of like the, the boundary of non dualism. Uh, into dualism, into into, um, and what's being described here is sort of the reverse. It's like the kind of the dual world kind of um, folding back into the non-dual. Mm, it is the um, yeah, it's the dual world folding into the non-dual. But how would it be the other way around? I thought that in the early Abhidhamma descriptions of you know I and I consciousness mm-hmm. that. 
there was a lot of pains made to say, and like Kazan just said, it wasn't like there was an object and then suddenly an eye appeared and saw uh, the object. Uh-huh. That actually the object and the eye consciousness came from the same thing. Mm. Appeared at the same time. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, there is, an, there is another story in the Yogacara tradition that um, the storehouse consciousness, right, this alaya vijnana that gives rise to all experiences and also stores all past experiences. That's the, that's the map in this system. Uh, these are conceptual models, but they help us shift our way of understanding. So, like, an experience of... Um, all kinds of experiences are, are being um, planted as these seeds in the, in, the, in the storehouse consciousness. And then there's these, like, seeds um, kind of sprout, is one of their metaphors, into a new experience. And um, when they get more detailed about it, they say, like, like an experience of seeing a color. Um, part of this model is these seeds called bija in Sanskrit. They say it's not like there's a um, one seed for um, for the eye organ sprouts here, and then one seed for the color red sprouts here, and then they see each other. It's not like that in this model. They say one seed sprouts, and that seed has, has includes the eye faculty and the color, and another seed sprouts, and that includes the ear and the sound from one seed. So that's a little bit like just. You know, I thought that's an interesting way that they thought about that, and it makes sense in that tradition that's trying to get at everything's coming from mind. An experience of seeing is one experience, but it seems to maybe like the as the sprout starts emerging, it like makes two leaves, <laughs> and uh, and one sees the other one. So that's a little bit like um, like. Uh, like duality emerging from, oh, not exactly non-duality, but almost like that. Storehouse consciousness isn't really quite the same as non-duality, but it's like from an undifferentiated um, realm, um, differentiation springs up, which is a little bit different than folding back into it. Well, that's sort of what it sounds like it's the reverse. It's like it's sort of springing into, and then this description feels like... Springing out of. Coming back yeah. the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are slightly two different ways of talking. Yeah, totally. So this a non-dual uh, merging mm-hmm. that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. So that would be why there would be no third, the, the consciousness... Is a dual. It's part of the consciousness is dualistic. Dualistic. Yeah, which is an interesting thing to note here too that um, that the sense consciousnesses, which we could say is, I think earlier in the session we talked about direct valid cognition, these different types of direct valid cognition, and there was sensory direct valid cognition. But it's interesting that in that sensory direct valid cognition, strictly speaking, it's still a dualistic consciousness. The sense consciousnesses are not conceptual, but they're dualistic. So I think this is just a subtle point that I find interesting that doesn't get brought out that often. 
that um, they're called visionas, the sense consciousnesses. So they're dualistic in the sense that there's a slight sense of a separate subject and object before conceptuality. Because usually we think of what creates the sense of duality? Conceptual thinking creates it. But, but I think my understanding is that the sense consciousnesses are a very subtle form of dualistic perception before conceptuality. And... Um, <coughs> <laughs> so, um, so I think you were saying, yeah, we, that that the sense consciousness is um, is um, would be a duality. But even a color, even an eye and a color, if you have them as two separate things, that's also duality. Right? So the whole structure of the early Buddhist presentation is a kind of dualistic presentation, and the Buddha, I think, knows that and is saying that it's that's why. In the twelvefold chain of causation, um, all of these things cease. With the cessation of the six senses, of the six sense consciousnesses, there's the cessation of contact. With there's no more subject meeting object. With the cessation of contact, there's the cessation of pleasant and unpleasant feelings, and with the cessation of the unpleasant feelings, there's the cessation of craving, and then there's with the cessation of that, there's cessation of grasping and the cessation of all suffering. So, so that's a, like a little piece of, the, of early foundational Buddhism that's kind of implying something about non-duality, even though they don't really um, you know, bring that out as one of the big topics. Uh, so... I think another experiential way to get at this, um, what we're talking about here, is see see if this works for you. You could take any sense, but let's take um, hearing. There's a sound of a voice, and whatever sounds there are in the room now, and then there's hearing of the sound. <clears throat> That's just an ordinary thing for us, right? We can we can even verify that there's hearing sound right now, just in the ordinary sense, but in a straightforward way. Is there not, he- unless we're deaf, there's hearing going on. And, uh, and then we usually think of it as there's hearing and the sound. We're hearing a sound. As if there are two different things, one called hearing and one called a sound. But if we, if we, um, if we uh, examine this ordinary experience more and more closely uh, we can investigate can we find a sound in addition to the hearing of the sound gotta keep making sound blah 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 blah. (laughs) so we know there's hearing and we assume that there's a sound out there somewhere that we're hearing But um, in our direct experience, putting aside all these maps and models of Buddhism and all, can we actually find in our experience a sound in addition to the hearing of the sound, like some other experience called the sound in addition to the experience we call hearing of the sound? Only through reason. We can only experience nervous systems. Yeah, only through reason. We don't get any expression here, it's just... Happens yeah. From the subjective realm, which is completely not mm-hmm. this. Yeah, or, 
or even based on these models, we assume that there must be a sound that we're hearing, but we get really experiential about it. Um, it's not like there's two different experiences happening, right? Called sound and hearing. There's only one experience. We could call it that's an experience of sound. I think it's more accurate to call it. It's an experience of hearing. So um, let's not assume that there's some sound in addition, kind of stuck on there in addition to the hearing. We can see it. We see it? We can see the sound, yeah. How's that? The complex. Oh. We have various forms of measurement. Or you can see someone respond to a sound that you could not hear yourself. Right. I mean, I suppose inference is still involved there in some way, right? But, yeah, right. it's only through inference that any of the phenomenal world is anything more than a sort of... Yeah, experience. yeah, these are kind of inferences. I think that's a good point, um, that they're not a direct experience. Um, and just to keep it really simple, it seems that in our direct experience, there is um, hearing and there's seeing, but is there... We can't really f- say that there's an additional sound or a color in addition to the hearing and seeing. Well, it's like you can record a sound, right? And there you've got your zeros and ones, you've got your waveform, and you can look at it on a sheet of paper and you can, you know, see how big it is and so forth. But ultimately, is that the sound? <laughs> you know, is the file the sound? Yeah, uh, uh, another way to say it would be if we're then looking at it on the piece of paper, now we're not even dealing with sound anymore. Now we're dealing with vision. Representation. Now we're dealing with sight, right? On but a piece it was of paper. A sound. But it that's was a sound. now inference. If we say in the present moment and um, present direct experience, uh, we can make those deductions and so on. But but we're either dealing with sound, with, or we're dealing with hearing where there's no sound in addition, or we're dealing with now seeing some um, a wave on a piece of paper um, visually. And is there? Is there that diagram in addition to the seeing of it? Normally, of course, we say, yeah, of course, there, it's there. But, but experientially, I think as a, this is a kind of a meditation that's, I think, very revealing to see. We can't really um, de- confirm, let's use Dogen's word, verify or confirm that there is some sight there in addition to the seeing of it. But seeing... In a way, it seems like it's it's pretty verifiable. Like like um, it's just our our experiencing, and especially if we say that um, if we notice that seeing is a kind of knowing. Uh, seeing is just one form of knowing, and hearing is another form of knowing. And um, conceptualizing is another form of knowing. And uh, knowing is, is jnana, right? And uh, in Sanskrit, knowing is another name for um, non-dual awareness. So, we could, so going back from the other direction, we could say uh, there's just uh, knowing <laughs> with no subjects and objects. Light, there's just light. And then... Uh, This knowing can take various forms, like seeing is a kind of knowing. It's somewhat, it's a somewhat now a a limitation on knowing because we're only talking about one sense um, operation here. So it's like, but seeing, is is it clear how seeing is a kind of knowing? 
whether or not it's dualistic. We could say um, it's a, it's a kind of knowing. It's a kind of cognizing, right? And then if we um, if we move in closer, we see that um, this seeing that's a kind of knowing um, is all there is in a visual experience. There's not like a color in addition to the seeing. So it's it's as if um, there is just this one awareness that sometimes manifests as the activity of seeing, but there doesn't need to be any colors or eyes in that experience. Those, those nouns, those solid things called color and eye are a little bit extra. They're a little bit even conceptual additions to the direct experience of seeing. Like we don't see our eye, right? If we're not looking in a mirror. So let's not assume that it's there. <laughs> seeing as experiencing, it's an addition. Yeah, yeah. See, seeing as a kind of experiencing, and the eye seems like an unnecessary addition when we're talking about direct experience. Conceptually, it may be a helpful addition. And color is an extra addition, I would say, too. So, um, another way to, so from, one, from the side of color, we could say, there isn't really any color in addition to seeing, and there isn't really any seeing other than just knowing, taking the form of seeing. So therefore we've gone from what we call a color is actually knowing or awareness. And you could do the same with sound. What seems to be a sound is actually just hearing experientially. And when we investigate what is hearing, it's just a type of knowing. So then what we usually call sound is a, um, just a manifestation of the one boundless, ungraspable knowing without any duality. Wow. Notice how in this, mo- in this model, um, if there's no sound and no ear in our direct experience, it's like there's a non-dual awareness manifested as non-dual hearing. As soon as we add in, like, well, don't we need a sound and an ear? Then we have duality. It's just, it, just, it says more about the epistemology than it says about reality. But mm. we can easily shift over epistemology to know things in a different way. But as far as really deepening the experience of investigating and describing uh, experience. embodiment, mm-hmm. yeah, Embodiment, mm-hmm. experiencing subjective um, field, then it certainly it makes sense. But it's also I don't know. It seems like it's nice to recognize in this epistemology implies uh-huh. that that what matters. Yeah. But, you know, well, we could also we can also say but also yes, color is a thing, and here's how it works. I think with the like the mind only tradition. Is, is could be said to be saying that um, um, let's um, open to this possibility that there is no reality besides epistemology. This is a huge thing to propose. Right, yeah. But it's like, uh, another way to say that is, let's not assume that there's any reality outside of our knowing of it. It's just being responsible with your knowing by acknowledging that. But it's not all we can do. Being responsible. Yeah, by recognizing that there is no 
if there's not a cognizing the field within which cognition can take place, within which we can have, you know, chitta, buddhi, and ankara, you know, there's not going to be, without there being these senses, without this field, this screen, then sure, there's no knowledge of what light is. And so it's good to recognize that. It's super good not to forget that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also, um, you know, we don't have to just say that's the only epistemology that counts. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I think (coughs) you bring up the difference between epistemology and reality, or ontology, you might even say. Ontology is like the nature of existence, right? Let's get based on it, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's an interesting one question. It's a big question, actually. Like in the in the mind only tradition, um, there is some debate about this. I think especially modern debate, whereas um, some people um, feel that that these mind only teachings in Yogacara is really an epistemology system. It's just describing how we know things, but it's not an ontological system. It's not making claims about the nature of reality. Like um, Ben Connolly is, is, um, takes that stand, I would say. So he's got a new book on Vasubandhu, and he says, We're not, this is not describing the nature of reality. This is um, um, just describing how we know things, and that's helpful. I've argued that with you and Charlie for years, and you both like, no, no, Vasubandhu is saying making a metaphysical plane. Yeah. Like, I don't see it. I don't see it in a metaphysical plane. So, yeah, so you could, so Marco's got that side. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, the, the um, texts that, that imply this. It's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting point, and um, I think a lot of the early Buddhism from the get-go and all the way through, and also other Indian systems, were often interested in epistemology, but I think a lot of what they were really interested, especially in the Mahayana, was the nature of reality and ontology, and um, so they're looking at different ways to get at that, because... Um, because that's where we're going to put our trust... Epistemology is just how we know things, but what is what is um, nirvana? What is um, Buddha nature actually? Is it just a function of the mind? So the, it's an open question, open debate. But the one place that just pops into mind now, and this is a whole other conversation that could happen, is I'm thinking of in Vasubandhu's twenty verses which is less popular than his 30 verses. I think it's maybe less popular because it, I think it tends to go a little more into the ontology realm. I don't know if anybody's read the 20 verses on Vignati Matrata, city of Vasubandhu, but he brings up, um, he uses some arguments and reasonings um, <clears throat> to kind of point at uh, how it could possibly be how could things work if there's no external world? Or some of his opponents were saying, we can see how we're projecting onto things, but isn't it going a bit far to say that there is no world outside of mind? And so in there, he brings up the dream example of a dream is a, is a realm where there is no external world, but it really appears that way. But, but one of his arguments there is, 
interesting because it's less about um, it's less about epistemology. It's kind of an ontological argument in the twenty verses, which is about um, trying to deconstruct an atom <laughs> in the fourth century. And um, the way he does it, it's a beautiful, pretty simple argument. I think is is because. Um, some of his opponents were saying, well, there is some... There, we know we're projecting conglomerates onto smaller things, so the conglomerates really aren't there the way they appear. But there must be some building blocks that things are made out of, called atoms. This was kind of the people Vasubandhu was hanging out with and talking with. And, and there must be some partless particle um, that's that all these illusions are built out of. Not just, they're not just mind. They're not just, um, they're not just mental projections. There must be some materiality, basically. It's the argument against materialist schools of Buddhism and non-materialist schools. Even though they, I think they all agree that things like books and tables and and these things are illusory appearances that the mind is constructing out of either, on one camp, mind projection, and the other camp, materiality. And so the materiality model is what Vasubandhu is saying. If you have an atom, the smallest part, particle, and you're saying there must be, um, it must be a partless particle that everything's built out of, because if it has parts, then um, it can be deconstructed more. So that's where basically he does. It's like, imagine a, a tiny, tiny, tiny particle. It has a, um, a top and a bottom and an east, west, north and south. Those are its parts. Right? <laughs> it has directionality. It has... Dimension. Yeah, d- dimension or extension is often the term they use. It, it must have so, some extension. And if you say that it doesn't have extension... Like it's a, like a point, a mathematical point. I think mathematically is supposed to have no extension right at all. If it has no extension at all, how could you build anything from it? In other words, the, the building blocks, the, the top has to meet the bottom of another one. And even if you say it's like a, a particle with a lot of energy around it, like our modern theory of atoms, um, still that energy field is at least... In high school physics, we see it as a round sphere, right? It has a top and a bottom of the electrical sphere. And so if there's extension, then it works nicely um, to build tables and books and stuff out of. If it doesn't have any extension, it's literally one point, then you can't build conglomerates out of it. So if you... What's that? That's connected to physics. That's mathematically. Two. You have two points, then there's distance between them. Okay, can you but how do you? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess they don't have the calculus, so I'm not sure that it's decimals to do with. Well, how would you like? Com- how would you combine the? If there's no substance to these points at all. Yeah, you take, the, you take the distance as the as the distance goes to infinity, right? And so, so that's smaller and smaller. I mean, this is like the, the way that Western math deals with this is like you don't. So you just say, well, okay, it gets smaller then to some you know infinitesimally small point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so they're basically, they're going into, the argument is kind of like using logic to go into smallness and to, and 
I think the logic in those days was like, um, you can't find such a thing as a partless particle because there'll always be parts, and you keep there'll always be a top and a bottom, and if you keep going down until it has no parts, then there's nothing there to build anything from, and you and and that nothing there is kind of what Vasubandhu is saying. There isn't any any material reality. It's just mind, and that examination is interesting because he's not using his usual mental projection arguments. He's talking about really let's look at materiality. If 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 if, if Vasubandhu's opponents say there must be some materiality, well, let's take a look at it. And that's his argument in the 20 verses. So it's an interesting one. I think it's provocative. And we might say that that argument is kind of especially seems to hint at that Vasubandhu was trying to make a kind of ontological statement more than epistemological. Isn't there an idea that you could get matter from energy? That's kind of... It's yeah. Matter from energy. Or that everything's built out of energy, we might say. That's, I think, somewhat contemporary view. And then is energy matter or mind, right? And then we could maybe argue either side there. Yeah, yeah, I think if no, we, I think most physicists these days say if even if there's no particles, if there's just waves or energy, they're still looking at that in terms of some physicality. This is a little bit out of my league because I don't know modern science so much, but um, I think it's too radical for even the the the, the scientists who are saying well, actually maybe we there isn't any material world actually they're still maybe not willing to say that it's just awareness <laughs> that's like switching over into a whole like it's almost abandoning science or something but like well that's just not we just don't know what it is <laughs> yet yeah. it, could be the, it could be the symphony of uh, these fields of material nature that actually are the, what, what is aware material yeah well, you could say, you could call it material <laughs> you know, our awareness is a really complex set of neurological processes. What we're aware of, that whole field. Mm-hmm. What's aware itself? Mm-hmm. It must be it must be something inherent in fields that you know we call space time. Make up what we call Well, matter. I think in the in the Buddha nature model, space time is the display of awareness, a manifestation of awareness, right? There's and even people like Einstein say that space and time don't actually exist the way they seem to, right? Even before quantum physics, or kind of the early Einsteinian versions of space and time are now how they appear to humans. This is an we have an animal sentient version of space time. Right? So these are big topics, <laughs> and uh, I think it's it's an interesting ongoing um, exploration and it's great for people to take up different aspects of the of the debate and play them out ongoingly. Uh, I like to look into all the different sides of this and um, uh, we might even say idealism versus materialism. Even within Yogacara if we say that there's some, some un- uncontactable realm that does um, even though we'll never get at it through our senses, it must exist. That's still ma- that's materialism, and I think that um, 
I guess I just lean on the side of, I think Yogacara is going beyond materialism. And I think Madhyamaka actually is too. Um, but it's so, it's so disturbing. <laughs> to me, even. It's disturbing to me. Well, what's the alternative between? Right. <laughs> yeah, because I kind of feel like um, I've heard people say that um, yeah, or, or either a mix of idealism and materialism, or beyond both. But today, I'm kind of feeling like if we're just talk, we're talking in conceptually here with words. I kind of feel like it may be helpful to see these that there's no alternative to these two camps. Mm-hmm. That any alternative to materialism and idealism is just a conceptual... Um, I mean, it's all conceptual. But to kind of mix them or say there's something other than them is a conceptual projection. Whereas it's pretty clear what materialism and idealism mean. In my mind, maybe, maybe I'm getting too black and white, but... Um, we haven't ruled out simulation. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah. And I guess the ones who say we're a computer simulation would kind would actually be materialists because they would say there's actually a material computer that's generating our our imagination, right? Yeah, but then that becomes self aware. I don't know. So I mean, it's a, you know, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah, the um yeah, the Elon Musk. Um, hypothesis. I think he's one of those, actually. He plays, that so we're, Nick Bostrom was the guy who coined the simulation hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that I've, I think I, I heard that Elon Musk even like ran some numbers and said, chances are much more likely than not likely that this we are in a computer simulation. Mm-hmm. Just by um, running the numbers means like all the possibilities. Yeah, and, uh, more about topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's. I think it's not mind only. It's similar to mind only. Maybe it is. Maybe it is kind of the epistemological version of mind only. But then we have this big, chunky, solid computer somewhere out there, made of atoms, <laughs> that's generating us. Well, one way or the other, we still have to live it out. Yeah, one way or the other. Yeah, I think this is a good point when we get into these that's things. That's where I kind of find it useless. Like, it's not going to change the way I interact with the universe. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just the same way I kind of look at material. I, I fall in the more of a all is mind camp. But, you know, what, what's the, what good is it to me to have uh, a, uh, a materialist, you know, worldview? Like, what can I do with that? You know? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true that either... If I think the epistemological Yogacara, sti- uh, as I would understand it, just is if there is some world, um, you know, outside the senses, we will no sentient being will ever be able to know it, except through the senses, right? Isn't that the guy? So, yeah, maybe my Treya, right? But um, so in a way, it doesn't matter that much. You could say it's. If there's a world or not a world, um, no one will ever be able to prove it one way or the other. And you could say, are there any implications? To me, it just, on the feeling sense, it, it feels like a slightly different implication to... Um, it, feels, it feels like more possibility to, to me to um, go with the um, no-materiality version because 
anything is possible if it's all manifested, not not manifestations based on a kind of somewhat fixed actual world, but manifestations based solely on intentions of sentient beings and nothing else. Then it's like these pure lands are seem much more possible. In a material world that it's harder to maybe relate to. Like where exactly is Amitabha's pure land? <laughs> I don't know. But uh yeah. It's an ongoing investigation. Kazan goes on. Because it is thus um, here we're talking about eyes merged with forms and ears merged with sounds without any separation and nothing remaining. Because it is thus, even though it is a huge sound which reverberates throughout heaven and earth, it enters the small square inch of the ear. There it is again, the small square inch. Here, though, I think it's, I think it's more straightforward. He's saying what we think of as this, as this little ear contains the, all the sound in the universe. Something That's how I would hear it. Isn't the supremely large the same as the small? He's just playing with this idea. All the, you know, everything is in this tiny bit. One illuminates the whole earth with the small square inch of the eye. So isn't the supremely small the same as the large? Isn't the eye form? Isn't sound ears? So this is for the non-duality. And uh, the way we're talking about, isn't there no color in addition to seeing? Isn't there no sound at, in addition to hearing? You could maybe hear what Kay's saying. Isn't seeing act form? Isn't sound just hearing? If we hear it like that, then um, I think then it might be the same type of meditation, right? Isn't the ear and color nothing but seeing? Isn't the isn't the eye and form nothing but seeing? Isn't the ear and sound nothing but hearing? Understanding it in this way, discerning it thus, this big mind is boundless and limitless. Therefore, the eye originally does not grasp or apprehend anything, and forms cannot be separated or divided. Aren't all these divisions of the sense faculties, the objects, and the consciousness empty? Therefore, when you reach this realm, you can speak of sound, speak of eyes, speak of consciousness, speak of thus and not thus. Not a speck comes from outside. There's not the slightest separation or boundary. When you speak of sound, hearing and speaking are distinguished within sound. So there's sound going on, there's both hearing and speaking within this one reality of sound. When you speak of forms, both the perceiver and the perceived are discerned within forms. All just different ways of playing with it, these three aspects in a way to see that they're not actually three. 
the perceiver, the perceived, and the perceiving consciousness. When you speak uh, still, they are absolutely not outside oneself. <laughs> Bottom line. Nothing is outside oneself. Oneself includes everything. Not versed in this truth, you people may think that sounds and forms are empty, false things to be located in unreality, but you must banish this thought. I think he's saying here, like, when we hear the emptiness of, the, of, the, of these 18 datus, some might think, oh, that means, like, in this stillness, there's just nothing at all. When we close off, all our, it's like all our senses are closed off. It's complete blankness. That's how I would understand he's saying. You might think that way, but you must banish this thought. It's not about anything disappearing. It's just that they don't exist the way they appear. He says, you think, quote, original mind is eternal from the beginning and cannot at all be changed, unquote. Which sounds okay, but he, then he says, this is most laughable. In this situation... What kind of thing can change or not change? What can be real or not real? So I think he's saying, if we say something like, yeah, this original mind is eternal and it can't be changed, and we're still thinking of it even subtly as some kind of realm or, or entity or something that could change or not change, that's already too limited. It's quite subtle, I think, what he's saying. What kind of thing is this, is this original mind that could change or not change? How could it be real or not real? If you do not clarify this matter, then not only are you ignorant about sounds and forms, you also fail to grasp seeing and hearing. Therefore, you think that you will not see by averting your gaze, or think that by blocking your ears you will not hear. So... <clears throat> This is binding yourself with non-existent ropes and falling into non-existent holes. <laughs> it will be hard to escape the many defilements and delusions. And maybe we could hear this also as a, as a kind of um, way of looking at if we can just like stop all this stuff happening, if we can just still our mind in zazen, um, so still that like nothing's happening. Sometimes we might think this way. Um, then we'll be free. But Kazan's saying, well, that's that's kind of like the Buddha's these practices the Buddha learned from these other teachers in India, right? These deep, deep meditative absorptions, the the uh, the absorption of neither perception nor non-perception, right? And things like this. And, uh, and it was, like, totally chill. But then, um, but then the bell rang, <laughs> and the Buddha got up, and like, well, that's just a conditioned state. Right? So we might think, we can, if we can construct this conditioned state of stillness, we'll be free in case I'm saying, any conditioned state is not going to be You'll never escape these these clashes and um, emotions, negativity. Uh, more like we have to find a realm that's not conditioned, that doesn't ha- exclude anything, because it's um, unimpeded. 
the nature of mind is unimpeded by uh, sights and sounds and um, bring on sights and sounds it's like in this realm it's, it's all okay because it's nature is Buddha nature <clears throat> if you practice carefully and reach this realm get to the very bottom of it and see clearly then even when you get to the summit your arrival will be unobstructed if you get to the, the very bottom then when you get to the top you'll be okay too <laughs> what are you talking the same knowing of that deep samadhi stillness is the same knowing as the sights and sounds. Yeah, 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 exactly. So there was nothing lacking in that deep samadhi, that deep meditative absorption. Um, but because the bodhisattva um, felt like it was just the state, he didn't realize that it was the knowing of the state, yeah. then he's like, I better look for something else. <laughs> another state or maybe he had the intuition already I'm looking for the unconditioned we, actually he, I think he did have that intuition well you have the experience of you know in the, the Buddha um, I was reading the, the Buddha's early sutras about um, about his uh, his Noble, noble search for awakening in the Pali Canon. It's very beautiful. Buddha describes a lot of you know his first aspirations and his and meeting with these other teachers and so on. And uh, but one of the things that's, that struck me was um, when he first sets out, he doesn't quite um, word it as like you know I'm suffering and I want to be free from suffering. Maybe that's implied, but actually the way he puts it in the Pali Canon that I thought, I wonder if anybody starting out in practice ever thinks this way, <laughs> the way that the Buddha did. He says um, something like, uh, um, I started noticing that, um, that, um, that everything that I want is, um, is conditioned, basically, Just when you're still living in the palace. Everything I want is subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death. And I myself am subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death. And everything that I want is subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death. Even like a glass of water is subject to birth, aging, it gets like dust in it, it gets sick, and it dies, like it evaporates. He's kind of implying everything is like that. And he's saying, and he's noticing that, and he's like, I, think he's really, I don't think this is going to keep, it's going to work out. <laughs> and he says, suppose I myself, being subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death, instead started seeking what is not subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death. <laughs> that was the way he kind of put his original intention. And then he set out on the path. I thought, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> that's, uh, that's quite an intention. And maybe, so he had some intuition. There is an unconditioned. There's, there's a realm that's not subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death. And I'm going to find it. <laughs> and, uh, and when he found that, that jhana state of neither perception nor non-perception, and the bell rang, that's, that state was subject to death. 
It just died when the bell rang. Like I'm mourning the loss of that last period of Zazen. <laughs> <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> but I, um, luckily there's, an, there's another realm to not mourn the loss of <laughs> that's with us during Zazen and outside of Zazen that can't be lost or gained. And uh, that includes um, hearing, seeing, colors and sounds. It includes birth and death as its display. It expresses itself as um, old age and sickness and joy and suffering. And um, it's happily and willingly, it knowingly and willingly expresses itself as everything whatsoever. And uh, the more you can trust um, such a, an awareness, the, uh, the more our conditioned life will um, come into accord with it more and more. It's my faith that our, our actual conditioned relationships and, and activities will, will um, align more and more with the unconditioned. It's a kind of ludicrous way of talking because nothing really aligns with the unconditioned. But um, they're like become more, our life can become more and more a pure, a more and more pure expression of innate purity. Takes time to develop that trust. No, I, it, I, I feel that mourning too. Because of that <laughs> opportunities for developing that relationship with that old fellow. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, In the realm of time, yeah. uh, of the appearance of time, it seems to take time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. For the sentient being to develop trust yeah. seems to take time. And, and um, from the point of view of, of that old fellow, there's no time at all. <laughs> there's no, um, there's no uh, difference between doubt and trust for that old feller. <laughs> also, Kazan says, have some humble words to try to express something about this story. Would you like to hear them? The, the spirit of shunyata, which a, um, a footnote says, he, he transliterates here, shunyata, shunyata um, instead of just translating as emptiness. Um, so the footnote says, in the Sharangama Sutra, there's some kind of, like, god, some kind of deity. Spirit is like jin or kami in, in Japan. Um, there's a character, a spirit named Shunyata in the Sharangama Sutra, apparently, that has no body but does have a sense of touch. What? So maybe it's somewhat related to the story. The case I'm brings this up. But the spirit of Shunyata is neither inside nor outside. Seeing, hearing, forms, and sounds are all empty space. Thus, we conclude. Uh, uh.
Genzo, no, Denko A. Sashimi. Three old Indian fellers. <laughs> that, um, those Indian stories are, have their own quality, I think, compared to the Chinese ancestors, are more like we think of Zen koan stories. And uh, we get the feeling for Kazan and his style, a little different from Dogen. And um, so many words, so many sounds, so many ears, so many mouths, and um, may, um, may seeds of prajna be um, planted in the, all the storehouse consciousnesses and grow, grow um, roots of shrutamaya prajna, the wisdom from hearing sounds and then the roots sprouting as reflections and conversations endlessly um, branching out and clarifying all these weird points that most people wouldn't bother taking the time to reflect upon. <laughs> and then through this hearing and reflecting, may the, um, may the may prajnaparamita that doesn't come from a seed um, shine its light on all of us and uh, touch our hearts and uh, awaken bodhicitta for the benefit of all beings. May our intention